Welcome back to the Palm Corp Podcast. We're still going strong. It's fun. We've been doing it for a little while. I'm back again today. I'm Mike Palmer. I'm back with Grant Balfour Hi. and Megan Citron. Welcome back to the show, folks. Hi. Thanks for having us. That's good to be back. We're in a new year. It's 2024. This is the first time we're recording in the new year, which is exciting. We all made it here. And we're not alone. We are joined today by two guests, which is nice. One of whom is a recent new college grad who folks may have heard of. She's been doing some really interesting work. I want to welcome Sophia Brown to the show. Sophia, welcome to the Palm Corp podcast. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Sophia's got an interesting story. We're going to dig into that next, but it's ultimately landed with a role at PEN America. And PEN America is uh, an organization I've known for a little while, based on my education podcast, they do a lot of really important work around academic freedom, freedom of speech, and some of the challenges we're facing in really all of our educational systems these days. And to help us with the conversation, we're joined by Jeremy Young, who is the Director of Freedom to Learn at PEN America. Jeremy, welcome to the Palm Corp Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're the first... I guess I would call you a civilian. You're the first person on the show who has not attended New College, which is great. It's a big tent. We want to include people, circus jokes aside. And then, Sophia, you're someone who's relatively new to the alumni network. So welcome to the alumni side of the equation. Yeah, thank you. I'm not even a full year out yet. Sometimes I still accidentally think of myself as a student in my head and have to course correct. And I should mention that I'm an honorary new college alum because I graduated from St. Mary's College of Maryland, which is the Maryland Public Honors College and the yeah. same network as New College. So I think of us as a sister school. And also we'll talk more about some of the work that PEN America is doing, but it's very much, you know, you are supported by you working with folks like Pat Oker and others who are now more involved in what we'll talk more about on Freedom to Learn. Before we do that, though, I'd, I'd love to get to know you a little better, Sophia, and help our listeners along for the ride. Can you catch us up on your recent history? And you've been doing some interesting work, even as a student at New College, and now that's transitioned into this role with PEN America. Yeah, since graduating, I've sort of continued to hover around Sarasota at New College. I lived in Sarasota for a couple of months right after graduating. Um, but right now I'm stationed in Lutz where I've lived most of my life. It's about an hour north of campus. I stay at home with my mom. Two of us work from home, we're co-workers. And I get to work as the community outreach consultant for PEN America's Freedom to Learn team, as Jeremy has mentioned, really focused on higher education efforts. And this was a position that was created initially in response to what was happening at New College. You know, mm -hmm. PEN America saw that there was a need that Florida and New College in particular was in kind of this dire position. And so me joining the team, it was actually a, a former professor of mine who alerted me that PEN America was hiring. Mm. And from there, like I heard from several other alums, other faculty, like, hey, if you are you aware about PEN America, they have this position they're filling in Florida and Sarasota. Yeah. It, it felt like a natural slide into this work. Yeah. You know, considering you know, where I just came from, everything that we've all been living in for the past a little over a year now here in right. Florida around New right. College. Yeah. And prior to that, you were editing The Catalyst. Is that right? At New College? Because that was yes. another element where we're always trying to figure out ways to connect across the years. And one of the ways we've been toying with is to talk about student publications over the years. Uh, you know, we all date back to the you know late 80s, early 90s, where there were 
a number of, again, self-directed, you know, student-led publication efforts that really made it out the door back then. But you were in this role editing the newspaper through this period of disruption, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's been over a year now since the new trustees were appointed. You were still at New College when that happened. Can you walk us through that experience and maybe catch us up a little more on what your role was and then what it was like to be kind of thrust onto the stage in some ways, any ways in which you could round that out? Yeah, definitely. So I was the editor-in-chief of The Catalyst for two years, my third and fourth year, my fourth year being when the takeover began. I was also a staff writer for the two previous years. So I was involved with the newspaper all four years. I mm -hmm. just didn't come into that leadership position until my third year. And that involved, you know, leading this team of student journalists, working with a faculty sponsor to, you know, by the time I was editor-in-chief, we were fully online. So in my case, curating a website and a weekly digital newsletter, sort of the ins and outs of like online journalism and all the particulars that come with that. Even before the takeover, before January 2023, it was always a demanding position and always, you know, in my eyes, a really crucial position for preserving and documenting the history of New College, what it's like being a student day to day on campus. Something that I think we all have realized is even more important to document right now because mm -hmm. um, you get, you know, big uh, overarching changes that have been documented by local media, by state media, national media at times. But even when that fades into the background, there are still student journalists on campus keeping track of the things that might fall through the cracks, but things that are still indicative of, you know, what is going on and what is being changed. Right. Actually, I, I want to ask something about that. When you were at the Catalyst, how long did they say the Catalyst had been in existence? Like, like, do, do you, did you have a date? I always mess this up. I... Well, it's complicated. That's why I'm asking yeah, the question. It is, it is complicated. I want to say um, somewhere in the ballpark of 30 years it had existed okay. in the, the form I knew it as. Although I guess you could argue that the Catalyst, as it currently exists, has only existed since 2020. Since before then, it was a print publication. There was a website that was being updated, but that wasn't the main right. platform. Right. The, when, you know, when... Catalyst is totally online, but... When, yeah. when Michael and Megan and I were around, it was sort of this mysterious thing that you'd find in old like desk drawers. You'd find like weird mimeographs. Yeah. yeah. Nobody was making it. But there was a publication that was out called The Reagent, which was kind of a reaction against or a memory of the catalyst. And then at some point it came back. It was like right. it was sort of, sort, of, sort of a rebirth. So I was kind of curious. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, where, it's also the, that I happened. mean, we were like late 80s, early 90s was also zine culture was yeah, kind of hitting very the scene. So there was a lot of sort of parallel stuff happening. And then desktop publishing takes off, you know, like the technological history of New College and then its impact on the culture is super interesting. We're probably not going to get too deep into that because we do want to talk about some of the work you're doing at PEN America. Before we do that, though, I'd love to hear a little more, maybe the full arc of your career there at New College, because it does, it's been interesting to me to reflect on how much transition was happening even prior to the new trustees coming in, you know, also coming out of the pandemic, dealing with the hurricane. Like, it was almost like you were in a state of perpetual crisis prior to it. And then, you know, it was dialed up to 11 all of a sudden. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think I said something to this effect during 
my commencement speech, but folks in my cohort, the the class of 2019, entering class of 2019, I don't think we had a single normal semester at New College. You know, it, even in my first year, you know, yes, there was the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, but there was also um, the threatened merger of New College with, I can't even remember what institution anymore. It seemed like there was a merger like every yeah. FSU or yeah, yeah. Um, so something, uh, one of the many other, you know, universities that, you know, was just desperate to get us on board, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so why else would it happen so often? Um, I, I think we had four presidents in four years, constantly hurricanes, you know, stopping and starting things. The mm-hmm. pandemic, of course, and sort of the that that tricky tightrope act of balancing in-person learning, online learning, hybrid learning. I just... And in that sense, it's so hard to even try to pinpoint, like, what is supposed to be a traditional new college experience, mm-hmm. period, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that question continues to haunt all of us. But even for for more recent students and recent graduates, I think that was just the perpetual state we were living in anyways. Maybe that made it easier for this hostile takeover to happen because your cohort had so many different terrible things going on for so many years that uprooted the normality or whatever the normality of new college was or or any college experience. Yeah, that might be true for some folks. I also do think that takeover was uniquely horrible in sort of just, you know, every crisis beforehand was always managed. You know, the merger was defeated. There were student protests. Folks went to the Capitol. It felt like we were very active in you know, preventing our own demise in that sense. COVID, you know, there's precautions you can take. There's ways to keep each other safe despite that. Hurricanes, you know, we rebuild after the fact. Mm-hmm. This, the takeover felt so all-encompassing and yeah. so final. Like, it, it felt as though in those early days, especially, there was no real way to combat that. Mm-hmm. I, I think, like, people were really hit hard initially, and yeah. it took some time for our resistance to to build up. Yeah, because it does remind me, of your role as editor really through that period and through the period leading up. That was part of why I was asking about the tumult is, you know, it does seem like from a student journalism perspective, there's a lot to report on and there's a lot to think about from an editorial perspective. Like I said, then the heat got even turned up more in light of the past year. I want to bring Jeremy in next, but before we do that, can you just describe that short window there from say January 6th, the new trustees are installed and, you know, you eventually graduate and land with Penn America, like that relatively short window in there does seem like you were kind of in the a very central role, really navigating all of that. Right. I, I think that I especially got lucky to just have such like an excellent faculty sponsor I got to work with, Professor Maria Vesperi, professor of anthropology, just because she was already such like a seasoned veteran journalist. And a lot of the ways she was coaching me and and teaching the other students, you know, in in terms of what's the phrase I want to use in terms of that really unbiased professional journalism as to not, you know, to say what needs to be said, but not to rock the boat, that kind of teaching really, it really came into effect during this time. I didn't feel like much had to change about my approach to journalism, but the impact it was having, that definitely grew, especially because, you know, I, um, as long as we had this digital newsletter, I would write these little letters from the editor at the top of every one that would only be seen by the new college community. You know, these weren't put out for the world to see. Hmm. And, And I would just usually try to write something sappy or like recap how the week 
went, they were never incredibly serious until the takeover. And suddenly each letter felt like, Mm. what am I going to say to these people? We just lived through another, like, felt like another wave of the apocalypse. Like, how how can I possibly? Suddenly you're you're FDR with with fireside chats where you're just (laughs) writing like a weekly update email. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. Like, well, we're all still here somehow. Yeah. And then that ultimately, then you're involved in the, the, alt commencement or the real commencement like you spoke at the oh, actual right. both right you were the only yes. person i think who spoke at both what was that like because that's the other element where i think a lot of folks were pulling for you empathizing with you but then there's also kind of like the spotlight effect of you actually then have to take the stage and actually deliver these speeches can you walk us through what that experience was like yeah and they're definitely two different experiences. I'll I'll start with the alternative commencement just because that took place a day before the official ones. Um, How I got involved with that uh, commencement was pretty unofficial. I just happened to be close with the students that were putting it together. Having been editor-in-chief, I, you know, I really prioritized trying to be as objective as possible. And so in that sense, I didn't really get involved with a lot of the, you know, resistance efforts directly. I wasn't helping to plan rallies. I wasn't speaking at board meetings. I would have if I could have, but, you know, that distance was necessary. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really expect to be invited to speak at alternative commencement. I had already been confirmed to speak at the official one. I thought they would, you know, let some other folks fill that seat, but they asked me to, and I was really flattered. Mm -hmm. I wrote an entirely new speech just for alternative commencement. You know, that group deserved something special. That was just such a beautiful evening. I I remember sitting up on that podium with folks like Pat Ocker and Helene and Maya Wiley, of all people. That was, I was so starstruck. That was, I don't know, it's hard to put into words. And, and, you know, maybe it sounds obvious. Uh, that that was, you know, that was the real moment. We Mm -hmm. all graduated, of course. You know, that was the true celebration of who who we had all become over those past four years, you know? No need for defensiveness, no need for for trying to deflect, just embracing, like, where we had come from and where we were going. Mm -hmm. That was, it was really special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then the next day, I'm sure, was a very different experience. But, it, you know, it is another place, and maybe, Jeremy, this is a good place to bring you in, too, where, you know, it's good, mm-hmm. even if maybe the other quote-unquote side is being represented, for there mm-hmm. to be representation from students and from folks like yourself actually on the stage for the more formal, you know, new administration commencements that did follow, you know, and then that does remind me, Jeremy, you know, you and I met, had you on Trending in Education about a year ago. And it was a very timely conversation talking about New College, and you in particular were articulating how, in many ways, New College is a bellwether for higher education in the United States, and the tactics and the playbook that's being run at New College is going to be run elsewhere. So I think you're bringing a different lens where, like, we all live New College in interesting ways, but the idea that a large nonprofit, we should talk through, I'd love to hear from you really what PEN America is and what you're focused on, but what about New College drew your attention, PEN America, and then how how has that then impacted the work that you've been doing? Absolutely. Well, PEN America is a 101-year-old free speech and human rights and literature nonprofit. Our members are professional writers. We carry out a series of literary awards and, you know, literary galas and celebrations of, of writing 
But our other side and the side that, that Sophia and I are part of is a, is a free expression advocacy side. You know, we, we, we celebrate literature and the freedoms that make it possible. And one of those freedoms is the freedom of speech, particularly in educational and literary contexts. So we're very invested in fighting educational censorship laws, some of which we call educational gag orders around the country. We've been focused on Florida in the past because of the Stop Woke Act and the Don't Say Gay Bill. And in 2023, SB266, the, which I think I called in the New York Times an apocalyptic bill for higher education. And you know, we spotted New College when this announcement came. You know, this was, I think we noticed this the same day that it, that it happened. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had been aware of New College because of my background as a St. Mary's student. You know, the New College was a school I knew of when I was looking at colleges to attend around the country. I thought it was a great school. And, you know, to hear that it was going to be taken over, not by, as often happens in other states, sort of new trustees aligned with the governor, but by a group of uh, really political operatives from out of state with no direct connection to the school, mm -hmm. with no particular interest in what the institution was, that struck us as a new and pernicious type of educational censorship that was going on right there in the, at the school. So uh, we were contacted within a week by both faculty and students asking for our help. We had a couple of conversations with them. Ultimately, I went to New College in April and gave a talk April of last year. And since then, you know, we've just tried to support the New College community and the spirit of New College and tried to make sure that the students who are left, the, the faculty who are left, the community members and alumni have as much, you know, support as they can. You know, we are very concerned about New College. I think I said last year as a demonstration garden for yes. everything that, you know, the, those taking it over would like to do to higher ed nationally. And, you know, I think it's telling that in the last year since we talked, there hasn't been another example like New College. There hasn't been another uh, state that has initiated a wholesale takeover right. of a state college or university. I think that is really testament to the New College community and to how hard they have fought and how difficult they have made it. I mean, the, the, the school has gotten pummeled in the press for the, the things that were done. Uh, you know, that really hasn't hasn't stopped or abated. You know, the community made it very clear that destroying an educational institution or, or trying to change its essential character in this way through a political takeover is going to be very unpopular. It's going to be very difficult. You know, maybe if, you know, it's something you're really committed to as a politician, it's worth it. But I think there was a real deterrent effect here to a lot of people around the country, not saying it's not going to happen again somewhere else. Right. But we definitely have seen a shift back into legislation as the thing that we are having to fight rather than takeovers of individual public colleges in this way. Which is good news. You know, it is where, you know, a Pyrrhic victory is still a victory, right? Uh, unfortunately, the losses may be felt, you know, a little too close to home for those of us who care about New College. Because if you look at it at a micro level, whether it's the sports programs, you know, while there's still other things that could be invested in, there's, you know, the removal of DEI functions. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's happening that, I think we're all kind of fired up about, but it's easy to forget that even as you see this slow march towards what looks like the destruction of something you love, that it's actually in service of a higher cause. And it's also something that it's good, I think, to recognize the fight. So I do appreciate you saying that where, you know, I think there's a lot of folks, many of whom listen to this podcast who are doing work every day, every week to really try to represent the spirit of the college and ideally take actions that make a meaningful impact. Maybe back to you, Sophia, on this, like what drew you to 
Pen America. What have you learned since you've been there? What's it been like? This is this is also a positive story in that a new college alum is landing a meaningful role where she's making an impact. So that's also a nice check mark there. But I'd love to hear a little from you on what's it been like transitioning into this role and in some ways, you know, keeping these closer ties to new college in the process. Yeah, I mean, the desire to try and make an impact and to try to stay close to new college is really what what motivated me to apply for the role in the first place. Uh, so much of that, um, you know, that final semester I had at new college was defined by just a sense of hopelessness. I was very seriously considering, you know, moving out of Florida, you know, doing my best, try to escape somewhere else. I was hard to, at times, envision a future. You know, for someone like me, I was a queer student. I was considering, you know, furthering my education. I knew if I if I wanted to do that, I couldn't do it in Florida under these circumstances. If, right. if what had happened at New College had happened, it could happen anywhere. And it was going to continue happening in Florida, as I think a lot of us knew early on and, right. and now really seeing echoes of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was also, I still had people I loved at New College. I had peers and mentors and people I wanted to stay close to and wanted to continue fighting for. And I wanted to feel like that work mattered. Almost in in the same way that my work with the Catalyst mattered. But no longer being a student, you know, means also more chances to make that impactful work happen. You're not quite so bogged down anymore. And that's really what motivated me to want to join and to want to do this work. And it has been a major source of hope. You know, I, I no longer feel sort of on the run as I did as, as a student. PEN America did recently open a Florida office in Miami back in November. That in itself has been a major source of hope that a national organization would see the need for this mobilization in Florida and and work to fill that fill that need. I've gotten to work with the director of the Florida office quite a bit in terms of Florida legislation, some lobbying opportunities. So that, that's felt really great to to feel like we can, you know, fight for the state and fight for the people in it. Yeah. Absolutely. And actually, well, this is normally a grant question, but I'm going to just jump in with it. What was your thesis on? Yes. yes. Oh, gosh. I, <laughs> I, I just feel so dorky trying to explain it, but I'll do my best. Oh, yes. Um, that's so that's I, the whole point. Way, yeah, dorky, dorky is one of our main yeah. lanes. So, so you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're in a safe place. <laughs> so I studied English with a slash in rhetoric and writing. Right. But my, surprisingly, you know, I, people usually assume I studied journalism. But New College didn't offer journalism AOC. But my real interest was poetry. Less, yes, creative writing, but also poetry analysis and sort of the like academic uh, discussions there. So my thesis, I was looking at something that I was defining as ritual poetics. Hmm. So poetry that was influenced by Gnosticism, particularly. And we're going to talk more about this afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the intersections of, you know, this ritual poetics with like queer poets. Mm. Um, I was looking a lot at like the 1950s San Francisco Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Duncan, yeah. uh, C.I. Conrad, too, was like a more contemporary uh, poet I was looking at. It was so much fun. I loved writing my thesis. I, I know, you know, lots of folks grumble, but I I love writing and I love research. Yeah. Well, and you were I was also just having a blast. Yeah, and you were editing the newspaper while you were going, and oh yeah, I like... couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. I was writing as much as I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Jeremy, it looks like you hired well. Any thoughts on the hiring process and how you're thinking about folks like Sophia and the type of work that you and she are trying to do in Florida? 
I mean, it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to know and work with Sophia. She's a fantastic colleague. She's really made, you know, made the most of this opportunity that we that we had to to work on on New College and to try to support the community. And, you know, we are what we've been doing and Sophia has been on the front lines doing this in Sarasota and elsewhere in Florida. You know, we're just trying to sort of help to maintain a coherence of the New College community that is, you know, supporting the spirit of New College, the traditional spirit of New College. You know, we have been supporting online programming. We've been supporting, you know, including some direct financial support for students who want to speak off campus on their experiences at New College, some potential support for some faculty initiatives. You know, we've been supporting the Catalyst as they sort of think about the ways that they're going to continue over time. And, you know, Sophia has been attending all of the board meetings and all of the foundation meetings and all the various meetings uh, at, at New College and also helping to, to to meet with the various groups, you know, NCF Freedom and the Nova right. Collegian Alliance and other groups on the ground. Jeez. And she's also been doing some excellent work networking with other partners throughout the state, including Equality Florida and the United Faculty of Florida and some others, and, and just, just trying to, to help help build something that, that is going to last in New College, that is durable, that is going to help maintain that character and culture. And then the freedom to learn is broader than just New College. Can you walk us through a little bit of what freedom to learn is, the area that you're focused on within PEN America? Absolutely. So the freedom to learn program, we are an advocacy and education and, and research and analysis program around educational censorship legislation aimed at colleges and universities, largely at the state level. So we put out a legislative tracking index of what we call educational gag order bills. That's updated every week. You can find it on our website. We put out an annual report, America Censored Classrooms, where we analyze that legislation and help to explain what the trends are and what concerns people can see going forward. We do a series of blog posts and op-eds and other pieces of commentary throughout the year. We do a lot of media commentary and media analysis. Sophia has done some excellent media appearances for us as well. And then probably the biggest growth area for us at, at Penn is building coalitions to try to support higher education and oppose this kind of censorship. So in addition to the coalition we help to support at New College, we also have a national coalition, the Freedom to Learn Network, that uh, we co-convene with the American Council on Education, which is a, a group of about 25 higher ed and civil rights organizations that meet monthly to share information on free expression issues related to higher ed and, and censorship issues. And also the Champions of Higher Education, which is a group of nearly 250 former college and university presidents and system heads, of whom Pat Oker is a valued member. But we, these, these pre former presidents actually represent all 50 states, uh, D.C., Puerto Rico, and Guam. And they work together and individually to try to raise awareness of the threats to higher ed and to try to build a positive public understanding of higher ed. They've written about 30 op-eds over the last nine months. We had an in-person gathering of about a dozen of them last month in D.C., and we've coordinated with them on a variety of other initiatives as well. Yeah, so it's it's pen.org, easy to remember for folks who want to check out what they have going on. The other thing I'd want to get from you, Jeremy, is I guess there's two elements to this. One is the book bans get a lot of press and attention. And then the other is more this kind of chilling effect in higher ed. Is that generally how you frame it? Or are there other ways, just if folks want a framework to kind of understand this playbook? Also, I've heard it likened to a playbook that's been run in, in Hungary. If folks did want to, you know, go a little deeper on some of this stuff, 
Can you provide us any of that sort of structural framework type stuff and any places people could go if they want to learn more about what's happening? Absolutely. So we call this whole phenomenon you just described the Ed Scare because it resembles the Red Scare, only it's aimed at education. It is a sort of panic about education writ large that it contains all sorts of unsavory ideas that are corrupting the youth. You know, this is this is a sort of age old concern about education that's reared its head again. And the book bans are the most prominent example of it. The higher ed restrictions, probably the next most prominent. There are also a series of K-12 restrictions, some of which we track both things like don't say gay bills and educational gag orders, and also what we call educational intimidation bills, which don't directly censor any teachers, but incentivize parents and community members to make challenges and requests that result in ultimately in censorship. I saw some of that. This is where it was pretty clear that the parent hadn't read the book, but they were kind of cutting and pasting a message to get a book banned. And it was as simple as that to kind of clog up the system and take books off the shelves. That's exactly right. We try to track all of these things. We also uh, have a campus free speech wing where we track threats to speech on campus that don't come from the government, but come from sometimes from campuses themselves or from groups on campus. And all of that you can find on our website. And there are you know, a number of other sources that do do some work on that as well. You know, the, the AAUP, American Association of University Professors, is a great resource for higher ed restrictions. The American Library Association for book bans, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, is mm. another good source for higher ed as well. Yeah. And we'll try to bring in a couple other interviews I did for Trending in Ed with New College alums, Jen Granick and Eric Schickler in particular, would be useful to kind of bring in to this feed for folks who like this type of content. We don't want to keep our heads in the sand. We want to at least pull up occasionally and realize like what's going on around us. And then the other piece, I guess, would be maybe advice or suggestions for folks who are, you know, activated by this. I think, you know, you were touching on something real, Sophia, is that feeling of helplessness, which I think a lot of folks our feeling in addition to all the stages of grief that we're going through. Sophia, you still got friends on campus? I do. Uh, Most of whom are, yeah, most of them are are still writing for The Catalyst, which is really great to see, or otherwise involved with um, SAFE, the Students Against Fascism and Education group that sprung up last semester. It's an interesting question how they're doing. I feel like it changes day by day, as it did in my final semester there. A lot of them, I'm incredibly proud of all of them. They're all still doing really amazing work. Like, a, you know, from the outside, their spirit hasn't been dampened at all. They're still, you know, covering these developments. They're going to speak outside campus. They are, you know, are, are taking on these challenges in stride. And I'm seeing them, you know, be- becoming like stronger, braver leaders for it. But I also know you know, no, nobody is completely unimpacted by these. They, I also see that, you know, there's still those moments of of hopelessness, of doubt. It's it's just such a bizarre place to be right now, New College. I still visit campus periodically, mm-hmm. sometimes to see these friends, sometimes to, you know, attend campus events. I, I try to go to theater productions down there when I can. And it's always just sort of a, a strange, uncanny feeling walking around and seeing the other folks on campus, because there's always just you know, a voice in the back of my head. It's like, well, you know, where do you, where do you stand? What brought you here today? What what are you thinking right now out right. here? Yeah, right. No, it's sort of the elephant in the room. Mm. I was wondering what it felt like because New College is a place that has pretty much toiled in obscurity for most of its time. No one has heard of it except for Jeremy, thankfully. He did know about it, but unless you knew someone who went to the school, it had virtually no 
footprint further out outside of academia. And so I'm wondering what it felt like being there and having it suddenly be thrust onto the national stage in such a dramatic and traumatic way. That must have been surreal for you and all, all of you. I wonder what how did, did you deal with that? Yeah, I it was frightening even at first. That first month of January, I remember, you know, news trucks uh, popping up on campus sometimes. I remember changing my route to work because I didn't want to get interviewed or have to interact with any of them. I had yeah. I had some friends on campus who had horror stories of, you know, being photographed without consent by journalists. Damn like, journalists. walking across campus. It's like, I, I know you need a scoop, but I don't think yeah. you need it that bad. I bet Penn, um, Penn America probably has a good workshop on that, which uh, which would all be available at, at Penn.org. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Our digital safety training. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It's, oh, it was it was frightening at first, in a sense, too. You suddenly have to feel so on guard and like double check yourself just as you're walking to class or walking to work. Hmm. Um, but it also became such a brilliant opportunity to get the word out. I think like a week after January 6th, I had a live radio interview all of a sudden. That it was, it was the first interview I had. And, and after the fact, I was like, wow, I, I got to speak for myself for a moment there. I got to like talk about my own experiences on this campus and why mm. it's worth preserving. Like, I got to try to do more of this. Mm -hmm. um, it also let me connect with a lot of other alumni who are also professional journalists. Some of my favorite coverage of the events at New College were done by alums. I got to work with one alum, Sam Greenspan from California, right. the Reveal Center of Investigative Reporting on what I still think is the best coverage of New College developments, an hour-long podcast episode just on the ground coming with me to board meetings and mm. catalyst meetings and little things like that that reminded me that you know there, there are people that want to hear our voices and are dedicated to you know not everyone is like a, a scary journalist taking photos of you as you walk to class you know there's also folks that are really dedicated to making sure we're heard yeah, I think that I, it was so exciting to see some people um, thinking of Stephen Walker the Sarasota Imperial Tribune, who really rose to the occasion and started covering the story. And clearly, David is so great. Yeah. I, I just, He's an honorary well, alum in my mind. Yeah. Least, like yeah. at the beards, that right. We'll happily entertain some of the legendary reporters who stepped up to the challenge. But it is one of those things where, like, when you're confronting these types of tactics, it does require the genuine courage to stand up and, you know, resist or, you know, just assert yourself. And, you know, it's a time where, you know, these tactics work if no one does that. And that's also where, you know, I'm, it is over time, it gets harder and harder to continue to fight the good fight. That's where I think this moment that we're in now is an interesting one where we're now a year plus in. I think many of our minds are blown by some of the craziness that has happened in terms of the policies that have been enacted and just the top down attempts to kind of like influence culture in odd ways. And the clumsiness of some of the attempts really stands out too. Yeah, like, 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 just a, yeah, the working. I, I was the mascot change stands out to me. Yeah, uh, like, to this day, I, I ended up writing an article before you know the mighty band you know was in place, but after administration had announced their intentions, and just right. digging into like the history of the null set and yeah. trying to figure out does anybody actually want the mascot to change? Little little things like that. That again, on the outside, you know, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal, but on the ground on campus you see the history and the culture behind that and how it's indicative of this greater takeover and this attempt to silence students right the idea that admissions is then used as, used as a tool as well where then the new cohort is very much a departure from the old one 
And then there's, you know, launching an online campus at the same time. So like there are tactics that are taking shape here that again, more from a, you know, art of war perspective, you kind of want to understand what, what exactly is happening here and what can we learn from it? No, using students' educations as weapons by that point, because then those new students coming in are just as much victim as the old students being forced out. Right. And no one should have their education be a, a tool for a higher power like that. Yeah, the Times Magazine article was was yeah. really interesting about the athletes and how the athletes were. Yeah, I forgot all about as a sports fan. I forgot that the transfer portal could actually get used by new college. It just my my mind is kind of exploding here. But the idea that <laughs> folks who are looking for another place enter the transfer portal and then the new athletic department can say, oh, come on down to new college and we're going to give you some benefits. And then once they're actually on campus, the realities of the culture, to me, I come back to something more I, I know from my corporate days, the idea of psychological safety, where like, mm -hmm. if you don't feel psychologically safe, you're not going to be able to learn. You're not going to be able to put yourself out there and you're going to kind of go out there with your guard up all the time. And it does feel like even for the folks who are true to the spirit of new college, whatever we mean by that, it's a very different dynamic when you're not sure who's on your side and who's not. Any thoughts on that, Sophia? Because you just lived it. Right. This idea of psychological safety resonates because I feel like that's what I was dealing with a lot in high school. Mm. Again, as, you know, um, a young queer person growing up in a conservative area, I was definitely on the defense a lot throughout, throughout a lot of my education. And New College was the first place to change that. You know, I could be socially out and now it wasn't going to affect my experience, my education. It could just be, it could just be a part of me, you know, and it didn't have to, didn't have to change anything. Yeah. And that's what, that's part of what drew me to New College so much was that accepting environment. And I can't imagine how scary it must be to be a student right now, a student like me, and to have to now suddenly second guess and question, am I as safe as I thought I was? Mm -hmm. You know, like, can I, you know, how do I have to second guess myself right. every time I talk to a new person? That's a painful place to be. I think another important facet of this is you know, there is, the, you, you brought up the athletes. There is no reason that a college like New College or any other college can't become a welcoming, safe place for athletes. The problem is the lack of communication in these, these big you know, seismic shifts in the organization, in, in the college, and with little communication and little planning, apparently, yeah. for how that's going to affect students, how it's going to affect the community. There was an outstanding piece in The Catalyst in the December issue about a student journalist who who basically followed President Corcoran around all semester right. trying to get an interview and was not able to get him in any formal capacity. And, and I think that's just really emblematic of what the challenges are here. There's no reason you can't make these kind of shifts. You can't integrate different populations into campus, but it has to be done with a care and sensitivity for how for the experience of students on the ground that I just, I'm just not seeing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that not a single existing student was included in any of these teams. So it was clearly not for the existing student body. I, I've always thought that was so crass that they did it that way. They they didn't even try to pretend, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think psychological safety then becomes a matter for these new student athletes, too, because that creates such a us versus them dichotomy. You know, who wants to to go to college and immediately be introduced to this idea of, oh, you are other from everyone right. else? from the right. pre-existing yeah. students here you also need to be on your guard and mm. and question you know what you're doing here 
that's, and that that's just not good for anyone. And that does remind me, you know, Jeremy, Penn also takes some tougher stances mm-hmm. around enabling speech that other folks may not want to hear too. So there is an element here of free speech in service of that ideal, even when maybe it's hard. So can you flesh that piece out as well? Because I thought it was an important note. That's exactly right. So, so Pan America has, you know, for all of our existence, taken the position that, you know, speech that really, unless someone is, is engaging in one of the few uh, kinds of speech that aren't protected, things like true threats, incitement to violence, things of that sort, that we want to welcome all kinds of speech onto a college campus. You know, college campuses are a place where, you know, one of the few places in our country these days where people from a variety of different backgrounds and experiences and identities come together and are expected to sort of debate the issues of the day in a sort of communal setting. And, you know, it's a very challenging problem and one that requires a lot of care and thought from colleges. But censoring ideas, you know, catering only to certain students and not to others, that's not the solution. You know, I think it's fine for students to have to experience, you know, challenging ideas on campus that they that might not make them feel the most comfortable in certain circumstances. But, you know, the problem here is that is that there, there just isn't a lot of care being given to what any of these students are experiencing with one another. It's noteworthy, I think, that students, that when we talk about challenging ideas and, and viewpoint diversity, that was a hallmark of what New College was about before. Right. And New College has always been a place, as I understand it, where a wide variety of ideas have been welcomed and, and people sit around and talk about the world. And, mm. and oh, yeah. you know, now what we're seeing, is, unfortunately, is a sort of crackdown on that and an attempt to, to impose only one set of ideas that can be discussed. And it's particularly uh, disheartening to hear, you know, Chris Rufo as a trustee saying in the New York Times that, you know, the real problem here is there's too many female students on campus. And so we need to change, you know, the composition of the student body by gender so that we can have, you know, more of one set of ideas. I don't think that's fair to the students that are being brought in. I don't think that's, that's a, a good way of thinking about viewpoint diversity or challenging speech. I think it's just an attempt to impose a certain set of views on, on an institution. Yeah. One way to apparently to get President Corcoran's time is to go to McGurdy's for a stand-up night where oh, maybe you can no. get a quick interview right when he's coming off the stage, which is a separate point. You also just named Voldemort, which is Chris Rufo, who we tend not to talk a lot about on the show. But it is useful, I think, to have folks who are ready to kind of take the fight to these folks. One of the things I would commend you for, Jeremy, is that you've certainly shown, you know, truth to power bona fides when it comes to, you know, debating and discussing some of these things. Because then I think we all know Chris Rufo was also instrumental in the Claudine Gay situation up at at Harvard as well, where the cultural influence of him in particular and of folks who have this agenda is real. And it takes all of us both shining a light on it and then figuring out how we might be able to push back and assert ourselves. We're getting close to time, but I'd love any you know, messages of courage and or inspiration and or directions for folks to look if they're trying to activate against this. But I would say, you know, really to commend both of you where, you know, each of you in your own ways have been really standing up for free speech and asserting yourself and not allowing this steamroller to kind of power over us all. So thanks for that. And I think we're approaching summation points if folks have any have any concluding thoughts same thing you know megan and grant i don't know if you have any final thoughts no i I wanted to second what you said about when jeremy kind of went immediately into the fray when this when this happened you 
but see that he immediately recognized what was going on with New College. I found it so heartening to see that on Twitter because it felt I was thinking no one knows about our school. No one's going to care. And that just yeah. meant, to me, it meant so much to see you do that. And I would recommend that anyone who wants to see, speaking of rhetoric and rhetorical devices, and Jeremy is a master of social media in a way that I haven't seen before. And to see you jump into the fray with Chris Rufo, was, it's, it's funny also. It's, it's, it's deeply funny the way that you approach it. And I, I think you're great at it. And I wanted to ask Sophia, where can we see what you're doing? Is there some place online that we can follow you or see what you're doing to get a sense of what's going on? Yeah, I I guess, unfortunately, I tend to avoid most social media, but I guess I'm lucky to not have a very Googleable name. I, I can say, you know, I'm I'm in Florida for the time being. I have not been chased away yet. I am now, you know, set on on sticking around for for as long as I can and trying to to change this place. You know, I won't be driven out of my home so easy, I think. I'm going to be sticking with Penn for the near future, and I'm going to continue to get involved with New College just as much as I can, as long as I'm wanted, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Any uh, concluding thoughts, Jeremy? Throwing any challenges down to some conservative public intellectuals out there? Somebody I call Chris, my friend and business partner, because he's the best thing that's ever <laughs> happened in my career. But no, I mean, I think I want to conclude just by commending the New College community on everything that you have done over this past, you know, year to to try to preserve, you know, education and free expression on the new college campus and in the new college community. The reason that new college was selected for this sort of takeover is because it was a small school without a national profile. And the assumption was that it would be easy pickings. And it has not been easy pickings. It has been a fight and a slog every time they have taken territory. It has been hard and painful and they've gotten pummeled in the press. And, you know, that is a testament to the incredible work of this community. And we're just so happy to continue to be serving and, and working with all of you as colleagues. All right. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much, Sophia Brown and Jeremy C. Young from PEN America. Thanks, as always, Grant and Megan, yeah. for joining me on today's episode. Thanks to our listeners, most of all. We've really enjoyed the ride so far. Hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing. I just want to say hi to Karen because she listens to every episode. Hi, hi Karen. Karen. <laughs> and thanks again to, to our guests this week. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is the Popcorn Podcast. We'll keep doing it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>